The opinions in this program are not necessarily shared by the Cortez Radio Board of Directors or staff. You know, the older we get, the older I get, the, li- the less I know, the less I have clear answers to things. You know, it's it's like, yeah, I, I, can, I can see that there's less and less forests in the planet, and I can see that climate change is happening, but how do we adapt, and how do we do it differently? We don't really have any great answers, and, and, and you know, you have to be careful when you run into someone who knows for sure, absolutely, because it's like, well, what do you know absolutely for sure? Yeah. You don't probably don't know what it's going to look like in 100 years, what you're certain about right now, or in 50 years, or in 200 years. And so the, those are sort of giant questions that we're grappling with, you know, just because we, we don't know. I don't know. It's, I, I, I don't know. I don't know what I don't know. And, and so that's why we're trying to take, you know, a precautionary approach, not do too much at once, not do too many things the exact same way, try to adapt, try to collect data on what we do, try to observe the implications of what we do do, trying to repeat the same mistakes in the future. Yeah. And, you know, and on the other hand, we can look at the context and instead of saying it deprives us of agency, we can say we're so lucky to be in the situation that we're in where, you know, the island really does have a remarkable degree of agency over what happens here Mm -hmm. and a population that, you know, really wants to see good things for the, for the wild places, Mm -hmm. for nature itself. Mm-hmm. So we're super fortunate in that way. You're listening to 89.5 Cortez Community Radio. This is Max Tyson for Cortez Currents. This week, Cortez Currents presents a conversation with the manager of the Cortez Community Forest, Mark Lombard, and president of the Cortez Community Forest Cooperative, Carrie Saxafrage. The Community Forest Cooperative, CCFC, is the non-Aboriginal equal partner with the Clahoos First Nation in the Cortez Community Forest General Partnership, CFGP. We sought to explore the ways in which the CFGP is balancing conservation of nature, climate change mitigation and adaptation, social benefit, and reconciliation through ecosystem-based forestry. But first, some introductions. I'm Mark Lombard, and I'm the manager of the community forest. I started as a voluntary director with the co-op, community forest co-op, and the co-op and the Clahoos each appoint three directors to the partnership board. And so I was one of the initial partnership directors and stepped aside after doing that for a few years to, to, um, to apply for the manager job. And uh, I'm a sixth generation small woodlot logging from a logging family in Nova Scotia and grew up, among other things, doing logging on private woodlots in Nova Scotia, falling and yarding and a little bit of road building and and uh, I'm not sure exactly how they how that relates to the question, but that's who I am. <laughs> I would like to add to Mark's verbal <laughs> resume that I don't think anybody has any idea how much volunteer time he puts into the community forest and what a tremendous labor of love it is. So I just want to 
put that out there because he would not. <laughs> and uh, my name is Carrie Saxifrage. I'm president of the Cortez Community Forest Cooperative. I'm a board member of the Community Forest General Partnership. When I was a clerk in a federal district court in Seattle, it was during the spotted owl decisions, and these logging trucks had a big demonstration and they tied up all of the traffic with their trucks full of former trees and every logging truck had a big poster sign on it that said your morning newspaper your coffee cup and it really had a profound effect on me about right. how do you become a responsible user how do you become like a sipper and not a guzzler because right. we're all Wood. We're not Wood. separate. Wood. <laughs> we're, all... we're all a part of yeah. the system. I started working toward the community forest maybe back in 97 when Liz Richardson asked if I would be on the board of the community of the Cortez Eco Forestry Society. And I was on that board for about 10 years. And then we left Cortez when my son went to high school and... I came back on the board, I guess, two years ago now, and here I am. Max, to answer your question about, uh, you know, the overall nutshell of the overview, what are we doing for sustainability? I think that when you look at climate change and, 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 and adaptation, resiliency is one of the words that comes up a lot of the time. And, and for us, resiliency is not putting our, all of our eggs in one basket. So we're not doing everything the same way every time. We're trying different things and we're going to observe what happens with those different things. So what we don't want to do is do a certain thing because we think it's the best thing and then realize actually it wasn't the, the right thing or climate change you know, throws us a curveball. And so we can try it. You can see that we've done all of our harvest differently to date and our next harvest is going to be a, a different system again. So we'll, we'll be able to observe over time and see how they work. And the operational staff does have some criteria that they go through regularly with every site that encompasses environmental and ecological values, and that may get formalized at some point. Yeah, we're trying to build the. We're trying not to convert a lot of the land area into roads. So we're trying to be more sensible and pragmatic about road building. Both not only because it's expensive to build a road, but it's also expensive to maintain the roads. It takes a lot of the forest area and converts it to road, which is taking away habitat and biodiversity. We're trying not to log during the nesting season for birds. We're trying not to log during the wet areas, wet seasons, because that obviously has an impact on water and water quality and sedimentation and, and runoff. Um, we're trying not to log during the really dry season because we don't want to have forest fires because those are super expensive. We're trying to tailor our forestry operations to meet the demands of the local mills to try to foster local economic benefit and, and, and promote the, you know, promote the forest sector because we all live in wooden houses. We all use paper and toilet paper and whatnot. So wood is, is a sustainable, uh, you know, renewable resource and things like that. You know, I could go on and on. <laughs> what we're striving to do is to understand how much forest we have, how quickly it's growing. And then in parallel to that, as a community deciding how much of that growth rate we want to harvest and how much of that growth rate is sustainable. 
So if we decide that we want to harvest 20% of the growth rate, well, we need to know what the growth rate is. And so that is the science that you're talking about. What is the growth rate? So in conjunction with everything else, we're trying to get a better definition and a better understanding of what the growth rate is, mean annual increment. Because it's all about the numbers in forestry, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending how you look at it. And the allowable cut is 13,600 cubic meters, which is what the government considers, based on its modeling, 100% of the growth rate. And so there are people in the community who are concerned that that may not be an accurate growth rate, and they think it may be higher or lower. And so rather than just speculating, we're trying to get a bit of a science, you know, some hard data to figure out what that growth rate is. The community forest is about 3,800 hectares, and 31% of that is netted out. Netted out, or excluded from the area that could be cut. For uh, riparian areas, wet areas, steep slopes, thin soil, a whole host of, of things. Visual quality objectives for the, for the Ministry of Forests for, you know, for making things not too ugly by the roads and by the, by the water. And so... The, the parts that are netted out, that 31% that's netted out, it could be old growth, whatever whatever those are. We're not operating on those areas. So then the, the, what, what's called a timber harvesting land base is the area of the community forest that we would say we're going to operate on. So if you were going to operate on 1% of the remaining 2,700 hectares, that would be 27 hectares that you could say you could log every year. And as it were, we're logging, you know, our operations have sort of typically operated on like 10 hectares. 10 hectares is 0.3% of the timber harvesting land base, or 0.0026% of the community forest as a whole. At that rate, it would take about 330 years to cut all of the timber harvesting land base. And the cycle could begin again with 330-year-old trees where the cutting began. I think the underlying assumption is that if we're aging the forests, that covers a lot of other really good things. So this is a numbers lens that results in the numbers of what is left, and then the more qualitative aspects of an aging forest, we're just assuming based on general knowledge that that's a really good thing to have a forest that's getting older and holding more carbon and holding more water and giving us a good microclimate and having habitat for the herons and the goshawks. In the area that we that we live in, a, a typical Douglas fir tree, which is one of the native species here, would typically grow to about 600 years, so maybe 800 years, maybe 400 years. And then after the tree dies, it takes another 400 years before that old that old stem is completely broken down. So throughout its life, just as, as one example of one uh, species that grows along with the trees is mycelium. And you have 200 species of mycelium that have been identified that grow in a Douglas fir tree while it's alive in its four, four, first 400 or 600 years. But then a full 200 more types of mycelium that grow in the tree after it's dead. And so what we're trying to do in the community forest is, is age the forest back towards having some areas that have old growth characteristics whereas the typical model of forestry in bc you might say are logging every 60 years so a douglas fir tree instead of getting to 600 years it's getting to 60 years another thing that i would say on that note is that 
in an older forest, the nitrogen that the trees get out of the get out of the air comes from epiphytes that grow in the trees, like a lichen. And one of the lichens that grows that typically would have grown in a, in an old forest here doesn't start to grow very much on the Douglas fir trees until they're 80 years old. And then once once they get to culmination age, once they get quite a bit older, like 200 years old, there's 20 pounds of lichen that fall to the forest floor per hectare, and it's all nitrogen that the trees can 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 use because the lichen actually sequesters the nitrogen directly out of the air. If you only let them grow to 80 years old, you're not getting any of that. You're not getting you're not getting any of the, the mycelium that grow in the later part. You're not getting any of the of the marbled murrelet which is a highly endangered bird species that grow in older fir trees. You're not getting any of the northern goshawks, which is an endangered species that only grow in the older fir trees. But at the root of it, you're not getting any of the nitrogen that fertilizes the soil out of the air for those forests. So you're, you're in effect, depleting the, the stock of nitrogen and nutrients that have been growing and, and, and gathering in the forest for thousands of years, something that Bruce Ellickson has often spoken about. So we're trying to age the forest so we get back some of those older forest characteristics. I think that's one of the main things we're doing and cutting way less than we're, we're expected to cut. To make that happen, we can rely on experts, which I don't think that people on Cortez are that inclined to do because a lot of people like to think things through um, just based on their own experience and their own knowledge. And uh, it's led us to wanting to ground truth and map the community forest. A few years ago at one of the meetings, there was a big call for ground truthing. And, um, you know, I was like, yeah, we got to do that. And I've since learned that it's actually like a really technical, difficult matter. <laughs> and we've gone through several iterations of what it might look like. And um, so what we're doing now is we're, we're going into points at different areas of the forest and we're measuring the trees, we're looking at the species, and we're entering it into a database that is used by a forester that we hired. We're assessing whether the Ministry of Forests in, uh, information is correct or not, and we've just started at Carrington. And we have a forester who has a program who can take that data and, you know, any if we see any inaccuracies, then we'll have to delve deeper. But if the Ministry of Forest data seems accurate, then we don't. And she can enter the different proposed cut rates and then show on a graph what the forest will look like in 100 or 200 years or 60 years or whatever. And so we can actually enter the ministry's proposed cut and we can enter what has actually happened. We can enter anything between the two and see the effect on the forests. So we're going to the points in the forest. We're looking at the ministry data regarding the age class, the height and the species composition and the, um, the growability, the site index of that place. And we're seeing if what the ministry established by aerial photos 20 or 30 years ago is actually true on the ground. And we're doing that by measuring trees. We're doing some increment 
boring of um, dominant trees for each site and we're, we're measuring undergrowth and um, you know it's numerical data and when we're there we're also keeping our eyes open for blue heron nest or goshawk calls and we're getting familiar with the forest we're spending time in the forest Bruce Ellingson and David Chipway and Mark Lombard and Matt Kushana have been saying for a long time that we're taking a really small percentage of the mean annual increment. So it's like if you if the forest is a bank account, to use a slightly <laughs> inept uh, metaphor, then we're taking 15% of the interest. We're taking 15% of what it grows. And, you know, I've just been in the room kind of taking their word for it and thinking, well, you know, I, I want to see the the numbers because I don't have their level of experience and so um now you know we're getting more numbers and i feel like it's being what what you guys have been saying is being borne out and i really appreciate kind of an open atmosphere where people who have questions and the energy to get them answered can figure out ways to do that you know this is one part of what we hope to do and I'm hoping that the second part will be kind of easier, which will be mapping creeks and wetlands and coming up with information that, you know, you, the operational team, will actually find useful instead of just a welter of random tracks right. on maps. Yeah. And for the for the listeners who are tuned in today and uh, remember the, the initial ground truthing exercise that was started to to look at the sensitive ecosystem inventory that was developed by the Ministry of Environment in 2006 through 2009 the operational team as Carrie refers to it we do that in our in our reconnaissance work where we go out and we you know we have the maps that show where the sensitive ecosystems are as per the air photo interpretation that was done by the Ministry of Environment so typically when we're when we're choosing where we're going to operate or harvest, we we don't look to work in those areas right off the bat, but we still, you know, operate nearby. So we, we do go check those out and we, we do map all the creeks and riparian areas. And, you know, we make sure that we stay out of those. We make sure that we stay out of those areas. And, you know, we've we've chosen so far to operate in areas that are not identified as high risk in the sensitive ecosystem inventory map. And I think that our team is quite a bit more thorough than the SCI map was, so we're trying to stay out of that, to, out of those areas. So, the Community Forest General Partnership is avoiding sensitive areas and species at risk, confirming growth rates to ensure they're taking only a portion of the interest, and cutting less to preserve more forest for longer, aging the forest. But, according to Mark and Carey, cutting nothing is not better. Cortez has lots of rocky bluffs and lots of rocky thin soil where there's lots of salal and the trees are really small. But Cortez also has all been logged in the past. So there's there's lots of areas that are coming back in hemlock and alder and they're not the species that are the most desirable species. They're also quite uh, subject to climate change and, 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 and increasing droughts. Both are species that like wetter areas. So you're finding areas that have lots of hemlock and alder that the hemlock is dying off and the alder is dying off a little bit early too. So those areas of the community forests are areas that we would like to operate on sooner than later because 
if you look at it from a client, from a carbon perspective, dead alder and mistletoe hemlock are not really growing very quick. So they're not sequestering very much carbon. So sustainability wise, if you think of sustainability as leaving more better for us for the next generation, then, then we do want to operate on some of those areas so that we can, you know, clean up some of that mistletoe hemlock and, and dying alder and have, you know, a, a more resilient or a better forest growing in the future. So it's pretty nuanced. It's not like you can just say, you know, 1% every year and 1% one, 1 of the timber harvesting land base every year, like every, every area is a little bit different. And typically markets wouldn't let, would never allow you to only log hemlock and alder. You, you know, because we're doing selective logging and small scale logging, our costs are really high and hemlock and alder prices are usually low. Right now they're super, super low. And so you still need to cut some of the more high value species like cedar and Douglas fir to make any operation economically viable. To add a layer to that, we're trying to foster a local value added industry on Cortez where we, instead of selling logs off the island, we're trying to sell logs to the local sawmills so that they can create value and create jobs and create a little bit of an economy out of the, out of the trees that are cut on the island and the typical demand from the local sawmills is for Douglas fir and western red cedar so it's a mix there's a lot of different factors that get considered there's economic reconciliation there's the log markets there's the retention of as much forest as we can do given the constraints yeah, it's very complicated. It's very complicated. And one thing I would say, too, is a lot of times when people work, when people on Cortez go walk in the forest, they go into the forest where there's the big, beautiful old furred cedars. But if you just go walking on any random given point on the island, more likely than not, it's going to be small trees with lots of hemlock because, you know, you're you're not always in the nice, rich growing sites, which which is where people go to. So keep that in mind and not just go and cut the nicest, biggest trees, but we have to go and look at the whole, the whole land base. We also have to look at it through the lens of forest fire and increasing droughts. And, you know, how do we prepare for that? And how are we, you know, I, I don't think, I think that the era has passed where you can just say, well, we won't touch that forest at all. And, you know, that, that'll be fine. Like we do need to start thinking about fire breaks and fuel load reduction and, and that kind of thing, you know, because it is really, it is becoming an increasingly dry area here. There's a lot to unpack there. The Cortez Community Forest General Partnership is not only considering the needs of ecosystems and species at risk, but also carbon sequestration, wildfire mitigation, local economic development, and economic reconciliation with their Indigenous partners. Let's start with climate change. What climate impacts are we already seeing in Cortez forests? From a forestry perspective, you know, the, the iconic species of the First Nations that lived here was the western red cedar in this, in this area right here. And what we're seeing with climate change and longer droughts is that the, the range and extent of the cedar is diminishing quite rapidly. There's just, it's, it's only surviving in, in smaller and small, smaller pockets of wetter, wetter areas and less resilient to the summers, which are, you know, are stressing the cedars a lot. And they don't necessarily die this year or next year, but multiple, you know, there's a cumulative effect of multiple dry summers. Um, and 
And it's another thing that I think is interesting, and, and, and it's a question, it's not an answer necessarily to your question, but it's something that we're, we're looking at is, it used to be that this, the, the deer didn't need to douglas fir trees, but now they do. Why is that? We don't know why that is. Is it because there are fewer wolves and there are more deer? Uh, did they always do it and we just didn't notice? What was what was it? But with the dry with the dry summers and the droughts and and I mean I think everybody listening here knows that there's been some really 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 dry summers. It's you know for the first time ever I think it was 2015 that the, the they the government closed all of the forests and closed the whole province to fishing and that had never happened before just because it was so dry. So imagine if you're a forestry operation and you're trying to grow seedlings in a drought in what used to be a rainforest, like it's, it's really hard. So the climate, the climate change is having a real effect on certainly on the forests and what trees are viable here. And, and it's changing. I think it's, we're in, in what's called the, the dry maritime zone, but the range of that is shifting further and further northward. And you see Cortez, the north end of the island has a lot more rain than the south end of Cortez. And I think that's shifting what used to be, what used to be wetter on the south end it's moving further and further up and the north end is starting to see even drier and drier conditions and the hemlock's another example hemlock like wet forests so if you go up the prince Rupert or the central coast the hemlock grow big and they grow healthy and they grow tall and large but cortez they don't they they just don't seem to be getting anywhere anymore because it's too dry too dry for them same with the alder we're noticing the dieback of the balsam fir we're noticing some dieback of the Salal. I think the big underlying worry is forest fire because, you know, like we were talking about, that would be really hard to control once it occurred and the forests are definitely getting drier. That, um, that Douglas fir beetle, Barry and I went backpacking to the Stein Valley a couple of summers ago where it has hit. And it's really something to see huge standing Douglas firs with all of these kind of like fungal blebs that the beetles are in association with and the absolute silence and dryness of that forest as if there's a uh, fifth season somewhere between summer and fall where there's not the relief of water yet. And it just is like hot, hot, hot. And um, I don't think we have any reason to think that won't happen here. I think if we're if we have our eyes open about what's coming our direction, we can pretty much count on it. And you know, I always feel a little ambivalent about saying, you know, well, Cortez is doing great, or Cortez is in a better position because, you know, I know some people on Cortez think that. We're, we're beginning to experience societal collapse and um, climate change is collapsing societies already. So what is the community forest doing to adapt to the changing climate? I, I, I have to say the Ministry of Forests staff have been impeccable. There's been a, a long list of people that we've dealt with in, in, at the ministry who have been really supportive, really helpful, really thorough, and and I've hardly run into anybody at the ministry who hasn't been really great to deal with. Now that said, we operate in a you know a very very highly regulated sector with multiple concurrent regulations, and some of those regulations, some of those obligations are 
quite tedious and onerous and I would say quite restrictive, particularly when you look at it through the lens of climate change and and, and emergent principles, because we still have, for example, stocking standards that require us to have a minimum of 650 stems per hectare. Say we did a small clear cut or a small patch cut and we replanted it with trees, which we don't typically do, but just, just to say that as an example, we have to have a minimum of 650 Douglas fir or Western red cedar. And because of climate change and increasing droughts, we're finding that Western red cedar are, are dying all over the place. They're just not as viable. And so the area that, that cedar can grow, it seems like now, obviously we don't know, we don't have the perfect crystal ball, but it seems like they're going to have to grow in increasingly the wettest sites on the island to make, to make them viable, which means that any site that's not a wet site has to have 650 stems of Douglas fir at three meter green up. So at the point when the trees are three meters tall and they're 30% taller than all the vegetation around them, which is what is considered the free to grow stage, we have to have 650 Douglas fir stems. Well, the deer eat the Douglas fir that we plant. So we have to cone the Douglas fir, white plastic cone, you know, to keep the deer from browsing them. And we have to put a stake in for the Douglas fir. Vegetation grows in the cones. The deer push the cones over, the wind pushes the cones over, the stakes rot. The tree planters don't get the stakes in perfectly well and they fall over and then the tree falls over in the cone and all kinds of craziness. That means we have to go tend the cones every year. So we're spending thousands of dollars a year tending those those seedlings. But Cortez Island also has a lot of laminated root rot in the Douglas fir. And so for people who aren't, aren't familiar with, with root rot, it's a mycelium, a mycorrhizal fungi that gets into the roots of the Douglas fir and makes the tree, the, the roots rot and the trees fall over or they rot and the, the, the stem isn't very good. And the typical practice in coastal VC for root rot is you cut all the fur down and then you dig out all the stumps and you turn them upside down so that the mycelium will be exposed to the air and it'll kill the fungi. I personally don't see that as a very viable strategy for Cortez Island to make a clear cut and then take all the stumps and turn them upside down. But you can't plant fur there if there's root rot there. So if you have a site that's too dry for cedar and there's root rot on the site, which there are on tons of the sites on the island, then what do you do? So we've been working with the ministry and they recognize that that's an issue. So they're allowing us to plant white pine and alder as an alternative. I was in the community forest this morning looking at one of our plant, looking at five of our plantations, the white pine, the deer are eating them now too. So this is a whole new thing. Everybody says that white pine didn't get eaten by the deer, but I would say 60% of the white pine seed terminants I saw today were getting eaten by the deer. The white pine also get blister rust and alder also grow in wet sites and increasingly more and more sites are getting to be too dry for alder. So if we had full freedom and flexibility, we might try planting sequoia and other trees, species that grow well in Northern California, which is maybe where our climate is going, slightly drier summers and longer droughts and whatnot, but we're simply not allowed to do that by the Ministry of Forests. So in a nutshell, to answer your question, I would say the people we're dealing with are really helpful and want us to succeed and are are literally bending over backwards to, to uh, support us with what they can but the overarching regulatory framework is is challenging, not just because of stocking centers. That was just an illustration, but, you know, cut rates and volumes and all that kind of stuff. So how about wildfire risk mitigation? 
you know, in the coastal temperate rainforest to a certain extent, even though we're in the dry maritime zone here, things are getting drier and the forest is getting, is, is, you know, quite old. Not, it's not that it's that old, but you know, when a, when there's a clear cut or a big forest fire, eventually the forest grows up with t- lots of stems, lots, lots of trees. So you go into lots of area of the community forest or the rest of the island forests, and there's just lots and lots of stems with branches down low. And so it's, you know, it, it would be ripe for a big fire because of increasingly dry summers. There's several approaches that you can take, but oftentimes there's there's thinning, so taking out some of the trees. There's removing the lower branches, the ladder fuels, chipping the wood or at least compressing it down and getting it onto the ground right away so that you don't have a you don't have fuel on the on the forest floor for a for a ground fire. Um, another strategy is to not have all the same age class and species of forest, so to have different ages and different types of forest. Um, one one approach that's not a really hard and fast approach is to have a mix of coniferous and deciduous trees because deciduous trees like a stand of alder don't don't t- tend to have a canopy fire move through the forest the same way that a coniferous forest does. But all of that kind of work, all of those kinds of treatments are very expensive to do and don't pay for themselves at all not even close you know you're looking at six or eight to ten thousand dollars per hectare to do it to to do a you know a a fuel load abatement project and typically funding comes through the ministry of forests or the union of bc municipalities or other government funding sources to do fuel load abatement projects we have been trying to get some funding and because we're not in a super high priority area, the pool of funding that's available here is not so large. And we did apply, well, we supported the application by the regional district for uh, two pilot projects, one around the one around the recycling center and one on the western boundary of our proposed next harvest in the Carrington operating area because they were identified as high priority areas in the 2011 Community Wildfire Protection Plan. We didn't get the funding. We got funding, or that that application got funding for the Clahoos to do a wildfire protection plan and for phase two of the community wildfire protection plan to be done. So some more planning and and, uh, analysis, but we didn't get funding to do the actual project. So while I would personally like to be able to roll that into all of our projects that have neighbors or private property boundaries, you know, around cut blocks to do like a treatment along the edge, it's super expensive and prices are not very good right now. So it's it's a hugely challenging thing to do that without without funding because, as Carrie said, we're you know technically we're a logging company, so our only source of revenue is selling logs. And there's been a real downturn in log prices. The COVID paradigm has sort of slowed things down, both on the logging side and on the demand side. And uh, we also don't have access to put our any logs in the water right now that we we can't sell on Cortez. So we're in a a really challenging spot financially right now in that we don't have any extra money to do that kind of thing unless we can get some funding. And like I said, we're not in a high priority area, so it's it's tricky. But it's it's on our it's on the radar for sure. And it's an emerging it's something that we really need to be aware of and I think we do have a real responsibility to be to be on it. Say you have a plantation and the trees are all twenty years old, they're gonna to have tons of limbs all over the place like all the way from the ground all the way up to the canopy so if you get a fire that goes through 
you know, there's 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 fuel loads at all intervals in the canopy. And so it's easy for the fuel to go from the ground right up. But if you go through and you thin that plantation and you take out all of the the worst stems or all of the hemlock, not the non-desirable species, and you just cut them and leave them standing there because they won't fall. They're 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 all all the canopies are intertwined, so they're not going to fall on the ground. Then you're going to have dead, dry fuel in there, so you're going to have even more potential for fire, more catastrophic fire. So if you get those trees onto the ground using a machine, pull them down and get them onto the ground, you're going to have you're going to reduce some of the ladder fuels, and you're going to put space between the trees and space maybe some space between the canopies, so you'll you could slow the spread down of a canopy fire or an intermediate canopy fire. But you're just going to have all that loading on the ground, so you could easily have a ground fire. But if you take the chip, if you take all those trees and you take out what you can for firewood and then you chip the rest and you spread it evenly and you've got like a six or eight inch layer of wood chips on the forest floor, I think that that layer of chips is going to hold moisture even into the drier, drier, drier times. And it's going to be harder to light a, a layer of chips on the forest floor on fire than if you have a whole bunch of branches and tops. Because when you have treetops that still have the branches on them, they're that's up off the ground and it's got lots of room for oxygen and that can really, you know, burn. Whereas if it's just like, you know, wood chips right on the forest floor, it's going to be a bit more moist. And Yeah, I'm not an expert either, but <clears throat> when I walk through the forest, I see any tree that's in contact with the forest floor or chips or branches or whatever as giant sponges that are just affecting the microclimate. And mm-hmm. I see any tree that's not touching the ground as a potential fire hazard. Mm-hmm. That's one of the main reasons when you go when you drive through the larger cut blocks, like you see in September after the rain starts, there's there's fires all along the hills. You see fires in the hills and smoke rising because they're burning all the slash from the logging. What we do is instead of cutting the trees down and dragging all the trees to roadside or into the landing and then processing all the trees in the landing with a machine mechanized the way it's done in the larger settings, and then having all of that all those tops and branches right at roadside, which they then have to make into piles and burn. We we try to process each tree where it falls. So cut off all the limbs where they fall and all the tops right where the tree falls and then pull the tree itself out. And then when the machinery comes through to, to, to grab all the trees and yard them out to roadside, we take the branches and the tops with the machine and we put them into low spots. And we make little working trails, little skid trails or little little machine trails and by laying the branches out, it compacts the branches as the machine goes through and it gets them down and compresses them into the soil. So by doing it that way, we're reducing the, the, the compaction of the soil by, by basically building flotation on, on, over the soil, especially in the low spots. So then you don't get mud holes and great big ruts like you see in other operations. It's expensive because the machines have to take all those limbs and put them in the low spots so we don't get the ruts. But you get the added benefit of having the, of having it compressed down so that that you don't have to grab them up and burn them all. You're getting them down into the soil. So the criticism is, or the weakness is that in the very very short term, in the first two years, there's a lot of stuff right there on the ground. But quite quickly after that, it starts to break down, and then you have a nutrient load that stays in the in the forest. So how about economic reconciliation? I have to hold two things in my mind. One thing is that in 20 or 30 years from now, every tree that is left standing, somebody's going to be really grateful for that we were able to leave a healthy 
intact forest and in terms of climate change nobody we should all be planting trees nobody should be logging anything that's one thing and the other thing that I hold in my mind is that this is an endeavor of economic reconciliation and we're so fortunate to have the opportunity to work with our forests in conjunction with the First Nation. And when I look at our respective histories, I just feel a lot of deference in terms of forest management decisions. Um, I feel a lot of deference to the Clahoos First Nation. And, you know, I think that they make really great decisions for our community forest. One aspect that the community forest, I think, on Cortez embodies quite well is you know, we've spoken about environmental sustainability, which is obviously a, a large, you know, concern or value for for a, a large majority of or a large segment of the population on Cortez. But on the social side of the community forest, there's a real resiliency or economic and community viability because this partnership is with the Clahoos First Nation and it's 50-50 partnership between the Clahoos First Nation's forestry branch or forestry operation and the the Cortez Community Forest Cooperative, which is a membership of 20 to 25% of the island's full-time population as members, I believe, which is which which is quite quite good actually. And you know, we we are in the traditional territory of the Clahoos First Nation and it's an unceded territory as it were, and this initiative was made possible by the Clahoos Chief and Council over the last 25 years having signaled an interest in, in, in working on this project, which they did for, for quite a long time back in the late 80s and early 90s. And then things changed and some, some, some problems came through and we didn't get a community forest back then. But then the, the Clahoos picked that up again in 2009 and 2010 and then through 2012, 13 formed a group of, of people and, and put this together. So, Whereas other community forests or forest licensees are, you know, in a position where they have to consult with First Nations and try to get approval from First Nations, we're actually doing this with the Clahoos First Nation. This is something that that we're doing with them, and this is all in their, you know, treaty area. So it's it's quite a remarkable partnership in that way. And not that this is the the main thing, but as a little point of interest for some people who might find it interesting, we're the only general partnership in the province for any. Uh, community forests usually they're limited liability partnerships and in a nutshell rather than being an arm's length slightly hands-off entity that manages the community forest the general partnership is formed that way because the board of directors has some a lot of hands-on on the day-to-day and general um, you know operational activities of the community forest not just the policy and governance side i think it bears repeating just in my own words, that we have the community forest due to the political will of the Clahoos, and they uh, and they chose to share it with our community, and so we are in a situation with uh, equal power. It's really a um, true work of economic reconciliation and being, for our part, for the non-Indigenous community part, being 
very aware of the generosity of the Clahoose in bringing this to us. It's just been so great to work with the the, the directors of the partnership from Clahoose. It really feels like a great opportunity. I appreciate it a lot. And how about that value-added lumber industry? We're in a situation where we want to log as little as possible for climate change. We are going to log because we're a logging company now and we have an economic reality. And so if we can use the opportunity of that as much as possible for value-added woodworking and capture that economic benefit on the island, then that's a real bonus. That's a real plus in itself. And, you know, the ministry has said in so many words, the more economic development we have from the forest here on the island, the less the annual allowable cut and those expectations matter. So it's sort of a circuitous route to having more freedom in our operational decisions to just, you know, really encourage people to become community forest wood entrepreneurs. Shop local, the same thing applies for wood. If you can use wood from, from the forest here rather than buying wood from you know, the building suppliers, if you buy, you know, when you buy, go buy a two by six at the, at the building supplier in town, you know, it's often pine from the interior from clear cuts that are 400 hectares. So, you know, you're kind of exporting the clear cut problem to someone else's backyard. Whereas, you know, if you use, if you use wood from Cortez, it's, it's more local. It's going to have a lower embodied carbon and potentially be sourced from a more sort of, as you would say, sustainable source. And it's important for local economic development. Like people are really starting to try to make their living from community forest wood because that's always been the dream, right? That it's the value-added manufacturing that is the um, economic benefit that comes from the forest. It's not cutting and exporting the logs so much. And people are really trying to do it. At this point, maybe you have to order and wait and if you do that, you are doing something that's in direct support of a better future for yeah. Cortez. Like, start planning, allow time, and do it that way. And, you know, we're, we're just, people are just coming up to speed. It won't always be that way. And we're figuring out wood storage and different things like that that will make it easier. But it's got to start somewhere. It really requires the, the early adopters. Yeah, we ha have the capacity on Cortez now to, to kill and dry wood and make fir paneling and fir flooring and, and hemlock paneling and hemlock flooring. We, we have that capacity on island now, so we're moving in the right direction. Yeah, it's beautiful beams and posts. Amazing, amazing wood here. Yeah, hemlock's been maligned a lot because it's, you know, it's not as moisture resistant as fir, but it makes great paneling for the inside of your house. It makes great studs for the walls. I mean... Some people say that fur is better for your exterior studs because fur can get wet, but really you don't want your wall studs to get wet anyway. So, and your interior partitions between the, the rooms in inside the house, hemlock is softer. It takes nails and screws better than, than fur does. When fur is dry, a lot of people who have built with fur would agree that it's hard to, to use it as framing lumber because you just can't get nails in there and screws break off. Whereas hemlock, it's, it works super well. 
it doesn't get as dark as fur over time, so it makes a nice a nice wood colored paneling. It doesn't turn yellow like pine. So hemlock is a hemlock's a great wood to use. I use it I use it a lot for, for building houses. Local builder and community forest cooperative vice president David Shipway once said that hemlock can be a longer lasting choice of lumber. That's right, the powder worm got into the fur but not into the hemlock, yeah. And termites, they eat they eat fur way more than they eat hemlock for some reason too. I have a good story that's kind of a funny anecdote to wrap this up. I was building a house one time, and I make all the interior paneling out of hemlock, and a, a, an old-time logger walked in from Cortez, and he said, uh, he said, wow, that's nice paneling. Where did you get that paneling? What is that? And I said, it's hemlock. He goes, oh, I hate it. <laughs> Firewood is another community need being provided by the Community Forest General Partnership. We probably burn 1,000 to 1,200 cubic meters of firewood of, on Cortez Island. And we're, you know, closing in on the idea that, you know, we've been harvesting about 3,500 cubic meters. That has been a bit of a target. So you're looking at one third of the harvest. It would be, you know, just in terms of volume firewood. Cortez is blessed right now with a lot of Douglas fir on the island. And that is a function of both extensive clear cutting of the island in the past 100 years and forest fires that happened in the, you know, in the 1920s and, and slightly before that. But Douglas fir doesn't grow very well if it doesn't have exposed mineral soil and lots of sunlight. And so what we're finding in our small harvest, our selective harvest, that it's very difficult for us to grow Douglas fir. And interestingly enough, if you're growing wood for firewood on a hectare of land here, you can grow about 3.5 times as many BTUs per hectare per year of alder compared with Douglas fir. And when you compare it, when you add on top of that the fact that alder grows on its own without being protected from the deer because the fur are being browsed heavily by the deer, so we have to protect them. The alder are also a pioneer species, so they sequester nitrogen, which Douglas fir doesn't do. It makes alder a compelling, a compelling uh, firewood from a from a broad policy perspective for the for the community forest and for the island as a whole. And interestingly enough. People really like to burn Douglas fir on Cortez because it has a lot of BTUs per cord. And I think even more salient is that the heartwood of Douglas fir, so the reddish part in the inside of the of the tree, not the sapwood on the outside, but the heartwood on the inside, when the sap stops flowing into Douglas fir, the cell walls form a resin. And that resin is, it, it's, it has a lot of BTUs in it, and it's also antifungal and anti-mold and anti-insect but it's dry and so that's why you can cut a douglas fir down and if you just burn the heartwood you can burn it right away whereas alder you can't because it's wet throughout and hemlock it's wet throughout so fir dries faster than those two or seasons quicker to be able to be burnable but if you dry your fir or you dry your alder or you dry your hemlock i think people would be interested to know that in a dry cord of fir there's 28 million btus per cord. In a dry cord of hemlock, there's 26 million BTUs. And in a dry cord of alder, there's 19 million BTUs per cord. So if you dry your wood, you get a lot of heat out of hemlock and you get a lot of heat out of alder. It's just that the fir, you don't have to dry it as much. But fir is the most valuable economic species, which we should be making into saw logs, beams, flooring, paneling, framing lumber. And it should be going to plywood mills in the regional market. And it's really not something that we should be burning fire as firewood because 
we're not having the big forest fires. We're not having the big clear cuts anymore. So it's increasingly difficult to grow fur. And in terms of resilience, we don't want to only try to grow fur. We don't want to make big clear cuts so that we can grow fur. We're going to have to do different things. So I think people are going to have to start rethinking this whole idea that we're, you know, going to have drafty houses and inefficient wood stoves and then just burn fur without drying it. We need to get wood into the woodshed. We need to get it stacked and drying for the summer. Any old timer will tell you that it takes two years or at least 18 months for, for wood to become seasoned. It's not just get it, you know, stack it for two weeks and then burn it. It, it literally is get your wood this year for next winter. So I think a lot of people can think, think about that a little bit. Well, that about covers the landscape. I'd like to thank Mark and Carrie for sharing their time and knowledge and for having such a deep commitment to the Community Forest General Partnership and Cortez Ecosystems. They have some people they'd like to thank. Thanks to um, the people who came before Carrie and I trying to get this project off the ground. <clears throat> Kathy Francis from the Clahoos First Nation in particular has been, has been a, a longtime supporter and still is involved and uh, Bruce Ellingson is one of the people who's been one of the longer serving people on the non-native side and, and, and a whole bunch of other people. Who Liz Richardson, David Chipoy. Yeah, who, who made this happen. Yeah, and thanks to the Clahoos because we get to have this conversation. Mm -hmm. Thanks to them. You have been listening to 89.5 Cortez Community Radio. This has been Max Tyson for Cortez Currents. Goodbye. This program was funded by a grant from the Community Radio Fund of Canada and the Government of Canada's Local Journalism Initiative. And now, Emily Millard from the album By Heron and By Season, Hunter.
is multiplying. Set the deer to run. Say, at the deer, set the deer to run. Say.